Our reading this morning is taken from Psalm 115. Psalm 115. In the psalm, we have uh, the living God contrasted with the gods that we can make, idols. The psalmist writes, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory Because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. Why should the nations say, where now is their God? But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Those who make them will become like them. Everyone who trusts in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has been mindful of us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, the small together with the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed of the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. The heavens are the heavens of the Lord, but the earth he has given to the sons of men. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But as for us, we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forever. Praise the Lord. Well, let's turn our hearts to this God and let's seek his face. Our everlasting and living God, we come to you this morning at the beginning of the new week, at the turn of a year on our calendar. We come to you eternal, timeless, a God who is in all places and all moments at once. You alone call every moment, past, present, or future, now. And every place to you is here. We come to you to worship you because you really are worth all the praises of all creation. Even had you not done anything out of kindness and mercy, you are still worthy of everlasting praises. God, your greatness is without equal. No one is like you and your goodness is incomparable, immeasurable, infinite, Your faithfulness is great and your mercy and grace, these are still amazing to us. Why did you seek? Why did you seek humans to befriend them? We are specks of dust. We come onto the scene of life. We grow, we age, we fade. Who remembers us? Why do you know us? How can you even see this little planet and all the Milky Way and all the galaxies? 
But God, you do. And we thank you that you have turned your face toward Adam's fallen race. And sent mercy alongside justice. That you have placed upon the Lord Jesus Christ the sins of every single person who will hope in him. And you will never cast them out of your family no matter how many times they disappoint themselves. You know everything there is to know about us. You have provided for every failing, every weakness, every confused moment, every doubt, every cold, unresponsive day. You have provided for it all through your son. As AC mentioned this morning, the riches, the glory of the riches of Christ. So we ask that you would give us grateful hearts today to begin our week, turning our faces toward you and to say to you, God, we are listening. God, you are worthy. We want to trust you with the kind of trust that fills a believer with rest and with hope and with cheerful, immediate, wholehearted obedience. We look to you, our living God. We look to the provision of your son, the God-man, to see his work, to see his courage, to hear his voice call us to get up out of spiritual bed and to join him in the labor of the kingdom. God, we pray that you would help us to see you as you really are, to see him to be fellow workers with Christ in this coming year, to do what he does, to join him in his work, to work as he works, to speak, as it were, the words that you would speak, and to do it all by your power. God, you know the weakness and the struggles of our own hearts, how up and down we are. You know the environment we live in. It is either poisonously enticing and distracting or it is fearfully combative, God. But you told us that you had provided through Christ everything we need for godliness, for life. So we look to you to give what you promised, as you, as you always have. And that the coming year, God, work. Work in us and through us. We pray that at this time next year, we would be able to look back and have new tales to tell of Christ. We ask it in his name. Amen. Well, I mentioned last week that <clears throat> I shuffled the Sundays and the text that we were going to look at because I think it would be really a sweet thing to look together at um, things connected with the coming of Christ, with the birth of Christ. But to look at the aspect which is so frequently mentioned when the coming of Christ is announced in the New Testament or when, you know, when the babe is actually seen. And that element is the, the astonishing faithfulness of God. Because ending the year... It's a good time to, to stop and think how faithful he's been. Beginning a new year with all the questions of what will happen. It's a great time to stop and think about the faithfulness of God. Do you remember in Mary's Magnificat, in her magnifying the Lord, she says this. 
My soul magnifies the Lord. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. The father of, Zac- uh, the father of John the Baptist, Zacharias, says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham our father. So, when the people of the New Testament heard that the Messiah was coming, that God was sending himself, the Emmanuel, God the Son, so often the thing that comes out in their praises is not just the benefits they received, but how the benefits came to them. And that was through the perfect memory of God, through the promise keeping of God, his faithfulness, his truthfulness, his integrity. Sometime, a long time ago, we, we talked about the faithfulness of God. It's a wonderful word because it's a word, it's very concrete. The Hebrews talked about faithfulness, and when they talked about the faithfulness of a person's character, they would describe a person who had steady hands. So if you ask them to carry something or to hold something, you knew that with steady hands, they wouldn't drop them. And God is like that. We put all our hopes in him because he has steady hands or he has a perfect memory or he always keeps his word. So I want us to look at that issue with the coming of Christ and then ask this question. So how does that distinguish God from all the other gods? And how do we live in light of that? Well, he is a God unlike every other God. And I want us to back up a little to all the way back to Isaiah 40, where God says to the prophet at the beginning of the good news in the book of Isaiah. If you remember, Isaiah is is a book that is so clearly divided into two sections that some liberal scholars have thought that actually there were two authors, but there is no manuscript evidence of two authors. But there certainly is a clear division where Isaiah, by the guidance of the Holy Spirit, switches themes. Chapter 1 through chapter 39, it's judgment. Judgment of the nations. Judgment of Israel. But chapter 40, he switches to good news. And Isaiah says so many things about the coming of Christ and the good things that he will bring that he often gets nicknamed The evangelist, the fifth evangelist, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Isaiah. Chapter 40 is the doorway into the second half of the book where it's it's almost all good news and it's almost all about Christ. And the good news starts with that wonderful statement that Isaiah is to get up on top of a mountain and to comfort the people of God and to cry out, behold your God or look, your God, he's coming And what follows then in the rest of Isaiah really is picture after picture of the coming of God to rescue his people. And it's a picture of Jesus Christ. That picture starts to really be defined in chapter 42, which is the first of four long songs that Isaiah writes about the coming Messiah. And we've talked about those so frequently. 
But chapter 40 doesn't move directly to chapter 42. There is a chapter 41 in your Bible, and there's a reason for it. Because chapter 41, in the midst of that chapter, beginning in verse 21, ending in verse 24, God calls this um, kind of cosmic court into session. And so God in heaven calls all the idols of the nations to come and stand before him. And he's going to put them on the witness stand. He's going to question them. And the reason is because Israel has loved the idols of the other nations for a long time, which is why they're about to go into, uh, to be uh, carried off into Babylon for 70 years. So God basically calls the idols in this, you know, this picturesque chapter to come and stand before him and give evidence to him, to all creation that's listening, that these idols really are worth loving and trusting alongside him. Look at uh, Isaiah 41, verse 21. He says to the idols, present your case. Bring forward your strong arguments, the king of Jacob says. Let them bring forth and declare to us what is going to take place. Well, that's one evidence that you're a God that's worth paying attention to is that you can tell the future. So tell us what's about to take place. He goes on to say, as for the former events, declare what they were. Okay, well, if, if you can't tell us what the future is, explain what happened in the past so we can understand them, these events. So declare what they were that we may consider them or know their outcome. Or announce to us what is coming. Declare the things that are going to come afterward that we may know that you are God's. Indeed, do good. So now it's not just tell us about the future or explain the past. Do something. Help your people that worship you. Do something good for your people. Benefit them. But then he goes on to say, or evil, you know, punish your people. That we may anxiously, you know, fearfully look about us and fear together. Behold, God says, you are of no account and your work amounts to nothing. And he who chooses you is an abomination. So in this court scene, God basically displays for all creation to see that Israel has made a really bad deal in substituting idols for a living God. Because the idols can't tell you what's coming, can't explain what happened, can't do you any good, and can't do you any harm. They don't do anything. You have to do everything for your idol. You carry it, you dust it off, you make it, you preach for it, and when it doesn't do anything, you make excuses. So God distinguished himself in the Old Testament in between saying, behold, your God is coming to rescue you, and then the next chapter, behold my servant in whom I delight. In between those is that explanation that idols are a complete waste of time because they're nothing like a living God. Because the living God can tell us what is about to come, keep his words, do good. For 4,000 years from Genesis to, you know, the coming of Christ, God prepared his people, for the sending of the Messiah with prophecies and so many other things. But let's just think about the prophecies. God, the living God, actually has spoken about what would come, and he has kept his word. 
So God can tell us what's about to come. God can do something. It's not that God gives us promises or covenants in the Old Testament so that we would, so he would be held to his word, you know, like we do. Sometimes I say to Misty, yeah, I'll help with that. I'll get to it tomorrow. You know, can you help with something? Sure, I'll do it tomorrow. And she looks at me like, you're busy tomorrow. You're going to forget. And I say, no, no, I promise. But I don't say that just for her. I kind of say it for me. Like, I, I got to remember to do this. This is pretty important. But God never gives you promises because he needs to be reminded or he needs to be kept on course. But because our faith is so weak that if God had not promised, it would be so easy for us to doubt that he would do what he said he would do. So I want us to look at some of the ways that God has kept his word and to see how that sets him apart from every other hope and to find reason for living in 2024 faithfully. Well, let's look at the um, first. I want us to look at the end of the Old Testament and the period that reached from the fading of Malachi's voice as the last prophet to the first cry of John the Baptist in the wilderness, you know, repent for the kingdom of God is, is at hand. Four centuries. They had the scriptures, but as for new messages from God, from prophets, new words to be added to the Bible, there were none. Four centuries, the people of God have all these wonderful promises about what the Messiah would be. And what he would do. And we'll look at a few of those. So all this anticipation. The Old Testament is so full. So perfect. In its preparation for Jesus Christ. But the one thing that these believers don't have. Is they don't have the fulfillment. It's all promises. And it's not yet happened. And they have to wait 400 years. Without another special prophet sent. Trusting what God wrote in the Old Testament, but not seeing its fulfillment. Four centuries. It's a long time for people like us. You know, four years is a long time for me. Four days. And in that period between the ending of Malachi's ministry and the beginning of John the Baptist's ministry, this intertestamental period between the Testaments, there were efforts to kind of speed things up and accomplish the rescue that God had promised through the Messiah. There were man-made efforts to kind of help God with that. And that's always a temptation. There are things in the scriptures that God says he will do. And he commands his people to be in harmony with what he's doing. In other words, God will do it, but he will do it through his people. And so for a person to sit kind of on their hands and say, well, I'm just waiting for God to do it. Well, that's sinful. But there are some things in Scripture where God says he alone will do it. And the providing of the Messiah is God's work alone. And for us to try to fix it, kind of like Abraham trying to, you know, fix the problem that he doesn't have a son. And he needs a son if all the promises are going to come true. So he just goes to his, his wife's servant girl and he makes her his mistress. When we try to do things that God himself said he alone will do, then we get into trouble. I want to give you one historical example. And if you hate history, you can fall asleep. I'll tell you when to wake up. But it's actually quite a fascinating time in history. And I have to really discipline myself not to spend the rest of the morning mentioning this. 
so that you will be dead by the time we get back to the Bible. All right. I'm talking about the Maccabean revolts. All right. Raise your hand if you've heard of the Maccabees. Yeah, good. Well, in some Bibles, there are extra books added. We call it the Apocrypha. So they are, they're good books, but they're not, we don't consider them to be on level with Scripture. And we have first and second Maccabees. What's it all about? Quickly, Alexander the Great with his giant Greek empire, this is pre-Roman empire, has conquered all the land around Israel and the known world there, and he dies. And his kingdom, his empire is divided up among a few lesser kings. They're not quite Alexander. So they get small portions. One of these is a guy named Antiochus or Antiochus. I'm going to call him Antiochus, all right. Antiochus IV was a scoundrel. He hated the Jews in particular. He was the head of what they called the Seleucid Empire. And the Seleucid Empire was the part of Alexander's empire that controlled Israel. Now, the Jews were always trying to get rid of the invaders, obviously. And so Antiochus takes his armies and marches into Jerusalem, he beats the opposing Jewish armies that are weak at this point, and he comes into Jerusalem, and there is a wholesale slaughter of the Jews. He just lets his men do anything they want. He despises Jews. He goes into the temple, and he defiles their temple by offering a pig on the altar in the temple, which is, of course, a ceremonially unclean animal. He makes laws that Jews can't circumcise their sons, that Jews can't offer sacrifices to God. He then builds a series of Greek altars to Greek gods all throughout the surrounding area in Jerusalem and Judea. While that is happening, out in the country, there's a little country Baptist church, all right? That's a joke, all right? There's a priest named... Mattathias. Now, Mattathias is a faithful priest, and he gets the commands. You are to lead the people in your little country town in the worship of the Greek uh, gods by offering sacrifices on this altar to Greek gods. And uh, so there's a Greek army officer there to make sure it's being done in every little town. And Mattathias refuses to offer sacrifices to the Greek gods. At this time, the Jews are pretty divided. A lot of the Jews think we need to be more modern. So they've kind of gone Greek in their hearts, and they're not faithful to God. Other Jews say we need to be faithful to our God. Well, Mattathias is one of the faithful, and so he refuses to offer sacrifice. Another Jew, who is one that's kind of pro-Greek, he says, I'll do it, and he he goes to the altar to offer a sacrifice because the pastor won't do it. And Mattathias grabs a knife and kills him. The Greek Roman, uh, the Greek uh, army officer is so angry when he sees this. Mattathias grabs him and kills him. And then Mattathias and everybody related to Mattathias flee and live in hiding. He has five sons. One after the next becomes the leader there last name is Maccabee, they become the leader of what we call the Maccabean revolt. And so they, they kind of gather together, you know, this, the, all the faithful. And so they, they have this kind of guerrilla warfare going on against the Seleucids. 
they kill Jews who are friendly to the Greeks. They force Jews to circumcise their sons. They destroy Greek altars, and they attack the Seleucid armies, you know, in in the guerrilla warfare. And they have some success. They take Jerusalem because the Seleucid army has some problems back home, so they leave. And so the Maccabean army goes to Jerusalem and says, God gave us victory, and then they have to start defending cities. And what happens then, for the sake of time, is we have decades of them winning some battles, losing some battles, winning some battles, losing some battles, and, and making deals with some of the Seleucid kings, you know, the empire. One guy wants to rule the Seleucid empire. Another guy wants to rule. They're fighting each other. And so the Maccabeans say, hey, if you'll be nice to Jews, we'll help you fight your rival. And so they do, and they have peace for a while. But then, of course, it changes. And this goes on and on and on until the Seleucid Empire is kind of weak and crumbling and Rome looks at Israel and the Roman Empire is growing and that's when Herod the Great, which we mentioned last week, goes to Rome and says, hey, if you give me armies, I'll conquer the Seleucids and then you can make me the king. He's not a Jewish man. He's not, he has no right to the throne, but he gets the armies and he beats the Seleucids and he becomes Herod the Great. Now, why did I mention all of that? There are times where it seems that God is inactive. You know, we look at the scene and it looks like he's not doing much. 400 years and you've been living on promises and the Messiah still isn't here and Israel is still not free. The throne is still not set on by a a descendant of David and the world is still not being drawn to that throne. And so you do it yourself. The Maccabees eventually appointed one of their men as a king and another man as a high priest. And everyone kind of thought, well, maybe this is the Messiah. The problem is, of course, that no man could ever do what the Messiah would do. It would take a supernatural work of God. The Maccabees didn't really free Israel. What victory they had didn't last forever and spread to everywhere and They were very exclusive. They hated Gentiles. They loved Jews, hated Gentiles. They hated Jews that loved Gentiles. So there was certainly nothing about the Maccabean rule that made people from every nation come to worship their God. But God was faithful, and God kept his promises, and God sent one who fulfilled every promise. Think about some of the promises. I want to run through a few of them. You know many of them. In the earliest days of, in the earliest moments of sin's influence on humanity, God, uh, in Genesis 3, he judges the serpent, Satan. He judges humanity. But he says to the serpent, I will put enmity, hatred, between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He will bruise you on the head and you will bruise him on the heel. And so in the earliest you know, dark moments of sin's ruin in humanity, God promises that someone from Eve will crush Satan ultimately. But that has not yet occurred at the end of Malachi's preaching. Later in Genesis 12, God makes promises to Abraham and says, I will bless those who bless you. I will, and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And later, Paul makes it very clear in the book of Galatians, 
chapter 3, he says, the scripture foreseeing that God would justify or forgive the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all nations will be blessed in you. But by the time that Malachi quit preaching, never had any Jew from the family of Abraham arrived on the scene and brought real forgiveness to the nations. If we go on further, one of the most amazing uh, settings for a, a promise of the coming of the Messiah is in the book of Numbers where Balaam is trying to prophesy against the people of God because he's been paid off by Balak. Now, do you remember the story? You probably remember that there was a man, a priest or a preacher, a prophet that rode a donkey and his donkey talked. That's probably what sticks out in your mind in that account. Israel's traveling through the wilderness in those 40 years. Balak is a king of the Moabites. He is terrified of Israel because of the way God has been giving them victory. So instead of charging against them with his armies, he goes and finds this prophet, a strange guy who actually does prophesy for God, but is not a godly guy. So he finds this old preacher named Balaam, and he says, I'll give you a lot of money to pronounce a curse from God on these people, these Israelites. And Balaam says, you can pay me, but I can't control what God says. So whatever God tells me to say, I'm going to have to say it. And Balaam's like, don't worry, uh, Balaam's, don't worry. So he takes him up on a mountain, and he looks out over all of Israel down there in the valley, and he prophesies, and what God has him say is good things. And Balak is so angry. I paid you to curse him. And he tries this three times. And Balak is just furious. And then Balaam, the prophet, turns to him. And at the, at, at the end of their relationship, he says this. Well, he said, I told you I can't just say whatever I want. God will, I can't curse them if God wants to bless them. But I will do you this. You know, it's like you paid all that money. I'll tell you the future of Moab. I'll tell you what God's going to do with you guys. And there's a verse that speaks of the coming of the Messiah. Numbers 24, in verse 17, it says this. He's speaking of someone who's coming. I see him, he says, but not now. He's not here now. I behold him, but he's not near. A star will come forth from Jacob. A scepter rule will rise up from Israel. He's speaking of the Messiah. We know that because earlier when Jacob, back at Genesis, at the end of Genesis in chapter 49, Jacob is an old man. He's dying. He calls his sons to him and he tells them what God, he prophesies what God will do in their families in the years to come. And when he talks about his son Judah, he says this, the scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. And to him shall, the obedience, shall be the obedience of the peoples. There will be a king that will come through the line of Judah. He will hold the scepter or the ruling staff. Nobody's going to take it out of his hands ever. And to him, all nations will bow. But when Malachi dies, that has not happened. In Isaiah 9, Isaiah says... That God prophesied, God told him that the Gentiles in Galilee who sat in spiritual darkness would see such a great light that they would rejoice and they would be glad in the presence of God. 
But by the time that the Old Testament finishes, the Galilean Gentiles are still in darkness and they do not like the presence of God. Isaiah says a child would be born and the governing of all events in all the universe would be set on this child's shoulders. And he would be described as the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the eternal father, the prince of peace. But by the time Malachi dies, no son had been born who had been entrusted with the rule of everything. And certainly no son had been born in David's line that was the, you know, the astonishing supernatural counselor, the almighty God, the eternal father, the prince of peace. Isaiah goes on to say that from Jesse, the line of Jesse, which looked like an old cut down tree, dead and worthless, the line of David, the kingly line, seemed finished. But he said, it's not finished. There's a little twig, a sprout growing on that root. And that would be the Messiah. And he would come. And he would be given the Holy Spirit without measure. And he describes him. He will have all strength, all wisdom, all knowledge, all military strategy will be his. He will know God unlike anyone else ever knew God. He will fear the Lord or stand in awe of God. And he will delight to stand in all of God. His relationship with the Father will be so perfect that every decision, every judgment as a king will be perfectly fair and righteous. His rule will be distinguished by an ever readiness, an ever preparedness to do all that the Father wants him to do. And when Malachi dies, no leader like that has come. I mean, we could just go on and on. The arm of the Lord has not yet been stretched out. The suffering servant hasn't appeared. There hasn't been a servant that God delights in. There hasn't perfectly without any, you know, without any exception. There hasn't been a servant that has carried justice to the nations. There hasn't been any Jew born whose ear is perfectly open to God like the Messiah's in Isaiah 50, and who never sidesteps obedience, but always does what the Father wants him. There has never been a perfect servant who freely gave himself on a cross to be executed for his people, where God would beat him with the stripes that were due to us. There's never been a servant who could justify all those who would hope in him. Jeremiah says wonderful things in Jeremiah 23. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a shoot off of David's family. He, the branch is a person, will reign as a king and act wisely. He will do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved. Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. Guys, This is not just history, but for every needy soul, this is life and death. That God will keep his word. But when Malachi died, and century after century after century after century passes, all those promises are sweet, but God has not actually fulfilled them. In Micah, the prophet Micah, you remember... In chapter 5, there's a famous verse because God talks about Bethlehem. 
But as for you, Bethlehem, too little to be among the clans of Judah. You're, you're so small. I mean, it's not like you're a clan. You're not one of the 12 tribes. You're, you're just such an insignificant little place. But from you, he says, one will go forth for me, for God, to be ruler in Israel. And his goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. There will be a servant who will rule, who will come from Bethlehem. And yet his origins, so to speak, are not with his earthly birth, but from eternity past. Certainly, when Malachi dies, that king had not come. All these promises, and they are not fulfilled, and 400 years go by. At the center of these is this issue that whoever is going to come and do a work like this will have to be a very special person. So for this kind of service, for this kind of work, for that kind of work, we need a particular kind of Messiah. And for that kind of Messiah, you need a particular kind of birth. Think about the virgin birth. In Isaiah chapter 7, you remember the setting. Isaiah goes to the, to the king, a wicked, wicked king, a, a idolatrous king, King Ahaz. And God has promised to be merciful to Ahaz. And he knows that Ahaz doesn't believe in him. Ahaz believes in idols. So the prophet gives this once in a lifetime, you know, kind of opportunity. He says to him, God says you can ask God for a sign. Normally, that's not something God is pleased with. You can ask for a sign. You can make it as high as the heavens or as deep as Sheol, as the grave. You can ask. It's a Jewish way of saying you can ask anything. God will move heaven and earth to prove to you that he's the living God and that he will do what he says. But Ahaz is such an unbeliever. He politely says, oh, no, I don't need any signs from God. Thank you. And Isaiah and God both know that this is because Ahaz doesn't think it's even worth asking because he thinks Isaiah's God doesn't exist, really. So Isaiah, in anger, says, well, God will give you a sign anyway. Now, the kind of sign that he gives is as high as the heavens, as deep as Sheol. It's astonishing. One day, a young woman, unmarried, a virgin, will bear a child. And that son will be the savior. Now, there's some argument. And if you go to college and someone says to you, oh, well, you don't know. Don't you know that in the Bible, that word doesn't mean virgin? And that's not true. But it's been argued for a long time. Martin Luther, the monk, back in the 1500s, when he was translating the Bible and he got to that word and he knew that some people argued, well, that word doesn't necessarily mean virgin. Luther made a bet, all right? <clears throat> He's a good Lutheran. So he, he makes this bet, and it's still available. He said, I will give anyone who can show me where the Hebrew word used in Isaiah is ever used of a married woman, not a virgin woman. If you can show me that it was ever used of a married woman, I will give you 100 gold florins, 100 gold coins. And then he wrote and said, but... It, God's going to have to give me 100 gold. I don't have that much money. But I would give it to you. 
And no one ever took him up on the bet because never does the word that Isaiah used there, never is it used for a married woman. It's always used for a virgin. There are two words in the Hebrew that are used for virgin. One is more technically precise. And the other is more general. And that's the one Isaiah used, the more general one. A word in Hebrew, it's called Alma. But clearly, when we come to the New Testament and we read in Matthew's account that Mary is pregnant and Joseph is confused and the angel explains, Joseph, your wife hasn't been unfaithful. It's not a normal pregnancy. This is the this is the work of God. This is the Holy Spirit who has caused a union between God, the son and real humanity in the womb of Mary. And this is exactly, Matthew said, this is exactly what Isaiah told us would come. Many years later, about 1,100 years later, there was a theologian named Anselm, and he wrote a very uh, significant book. He wrote a book called Cur Deus Homo, or Why God Became Man. Okay, he wrote it in the year 1094, we're actually going to be looking at it in a podcast uh, because it's such a significant book. Uh, Chris Green and Steve Crampton are going to pitch in. They're the brains. I just say, what do you think, Chris? What do you think, Steve? All right, so they do the brain work. But in this book, Anselm argues, why did God have to become man in the person of Jesus Christ in order to save people like us? Why didn't he just say, I forgive? Why didn't he just get rid of hell? In the book, he has to deal with the issue of the virgin birth because there are people who are saying, are you sure it was a virgin birth? That's, that's really strange. And so he gives in his book four ways that God had, up to that point in human history, four ways that the Bible showed that God had made a human. You ready for them? Number one, by the law of natural generation, he writes. That is, a husband and a wife and the natural process of having a baby. Second, God has made a human without the agency of either a man or a woman. Anybody know that person? Adam. Third, a man is involved, but not a woman. Eve. Fourth, through a supernatural, miraculous empowering of a man and a woman whose bodies could no longer physically create a baby. Like uh, uh, Elizabeth and Zacharias, like Abraham and Sarah. Now, Anselm argues and says, look, do you have any problem with those four? And the people are like, well, nope, that's obvious. That's in the scripture. Then he said, well, here's a fifth way. God can create a human and he has born of a woman without the involvement of a man. Have you thought about all that the virgin birth is connected with? It's connected with the truth that Christ was preexistent. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, always was. The Word was God. He is God the Son, eternal. He existed long before anything else existed. He is not the first of creation. He's the creator. He's the uncaused cause. The Father entrusted creation to His Son. The second person of the triune God has always been. And so when we have the birth of Jesus of Nazareth, 
in that miraculous way, it opens our understanding that someone who existed before this baby has come and been united to this child. The sinlessness of Jesus. That it is because the Holy Spirit caused the conception that the sin nature, not of Joseph, but not of Mary either, the sinfulness of human nature was not transmitted to Jesus of Nazareth, that he is holy, that he is the human, like Adam and Eve once were, who had no sin within. When we look at the virgin birth, we say, this is God, and this is man. And so we have a perfect rescuer who can stand between us and God. Do you remember Job's complaint? In Job chapter 9, when his friends keep saying to him, you know, Job, you've obviously done some bad things, but that's why your life is so miserable. And Job keeps saying, this isn't because of some hidden sin. And, and they say, well, Job, now God is holy. And Job just breaks out in chapter 9 with this great explanation. Yes, God is holy. God is righteous. And I'm not righteous like that. And if I tried to plead my case, my mouth would... My own mouth would accuse me. My conscience would point at me and say, Job, you're not really that good. I can't clean myself up, he said. If I tried to scrub myself with soap and pure water, it wouldn't work. My clothes hate to hang on this body of a sinner. But I can't even go and beg God in heaven or argue my case because I can't reach that courtroom. What hope is there for me? I need a mediator, an umpire. I need somebody who is at home with God in heaven, but one of us. And it's Jesus of Nazareth. It's what the writer of Hebrews says, that he had to become like us to save us, to represent us. Jesus offers no hope to fallen angels because what he did, he did as a human. And so it's humans, it's fallen humanity that hopes. Now, by the end of Malachi's Life, 4,000 years, and still no fulfillment of all these hopes. And then John the Baptist comes, and he cries out, the king and his kingdom have arrived. And he calls people to repent and to hope in that king. How do you live today in light of the faithfulness of God that was demonstrated in the coming of Jesus Christ because he did do those things that I've read and he is still doing them. Well, it's not rocket science because it's the same way the Old Testament believer lived. Hebrews chapter 11, believing what God says is unchangeably true because of the character of our God. We are free to live on what's real and not what feels real at the moment. We're free to risk everything to follow Christ. We can believe that what God says he will do, he will do. Now, there is a difference, though, isn't there? We look back on those fulfilled promises and our hearts find rest. But that's not all we do. We look forward to the yet to be accomplished promises, and that thrills us. Looking back, it's like, there's a solid foundation for our hope. 
looking forward to the promises that are being accomplished or are yet to be accomplished, they fill us with a, an appropriate expectation, not some pipe dream that we think, I, I wish God would do this, but God has said he'll do this. And because he has been faithful to 4,000 years of promises, to 6,000 years of promises, he will be faithful tomorrow morning. And in 2024, I will wake up tomorrow morning. And if I am a follower of Christ, I belong to the one person who always remembers his word, who always does what he says. So I look behind and I look forward and live like the believer of the old covenant. I am anticipating what is yet to come, which is better than what has preceded. The end is better than, than all those wonderful things in the beginning. There is a fullness for a Christian. That's different. You don't look at the coming promises as an old covenant believer, but as a new covenant believer. And while you're saved by grace through faith, like every old covenant believer, the new covenant believer, there is something distinct. There is something superior. There is a fullness and a freeness in the work of God within and through his people that the old covenant believer did not have. There is a degree of privilege that you have. So while you, like an Old Testament believer, live on what God says, there ought to be a greater degree of, of expectation and hope and happiness. And certainly we feel, if we've walked with Christ any amount of time, that we desperately need this because we're not the kind of people whose resolutions last longer than the drive home from church. All it takes is one kid in the car to bump you the wrong way or one word said by your spouse that cuts across the grain and, and immediately you forget all your good resolutions. I'm going to follow the Lord more closely, more happily and more faithfully and it's, it's evaporated. But God is not that way. He does not forget his resolutions and all the things that are yet to come. Think of it. What he has begun, the good work he's begun in you, he will finish it. Is, do you think that's the promise that suddenly the living God will stop remembering his words on? He made it all the way up to now and then er, the brakes are on and you're not going to get finished? Or that his grace is sufficient? Or that with every temptation, there will be a provision. There will be a safe place for you to go in the midst of that temptation. Or that God will provide everything that's really good for you. And you're free to seek his kingdom and his righteousness. Do you think that those pages of your Bible, that, that that's the page that God will stop being God and stop being faithful? So as you read your Bible in the coming year, and you see things that are that, that promises that affect the present moment and promises that affect the coming moments, you can look at them like the old covenant believer and you can say to yourself, I know it's been a long time, but our God has remembered his covenant every time and he has done what he said and he will continue to be that kind of a God. And my ups and downs will not derail his faithfulness. Paul talks about the unfaithfulness of people in a church sometimes. But God is not unfaithful. So we look to him 
We look back, we look forward, we see the fullness that's there. And Christian, you put to death, and it will be a, it will be a spiritually violent act. You hack to pieces like King, like uh, the prophet Samuel hacked King Agag to pieces. You mercilessly offering no ceasefire and no sanctuary. You kill daily the lies of the enemy that come in and whisper doubts to you about God and about his faithfulness and his goodness. But what if you are not followers of Christ? What if you say, well, I'm, I intend one day to be, but I'm not now. Why not come to the one being who has always kept his word and his word is so full of hope for you? Why not, why not abandon the one who lies to you each time? Sin comes to steal and kill and destroy. Sin has never told you the truth. Selfishness has never been honest with you. The old master never pays you what he says he'll pay you. Why don't you break friendship with him and run to the king and say, your word says amazing things about your mercy to the worst of sinners, and I'm him, I'm her. So save me for your glory. Make my life's rescue a part of your integrity that you will do what you said you would do. You will receive sinners that come to you through Christ. If you don't, the other option is to realize that you are at war still. Each moment of reluctance and, and refusal, you are at war with the one being who always does what he says. And there are many passages that explain what a miserable, hopeless, empty, doomed existence it is. We can't call it life. When you say to God, well, I know you say these things, but I don't believe. And you turn away again. It's an extraordinary thing to belong to a living God. He's so different than every idol that we made before. He speaks. He tells us what's coming. He acts. And we have the privilege of walking with him in friendship. Well, I'll read a doxology and we can just um, sit for a short moment of silence and then we'll be dismissed. It's a doxology that gives us one of those promises that is yet to be fulfilled. Jude says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.